Psalm 119 and verse 145 is our text tonight. If I had to pick a favorite chapter of the the book of Psalms, that would be like picking your favorite candy in a candy store. But I, I think that my favorite chapter is Psalm 119. It is an absolute masterpiece, as is all of God's word. The longest chapter in the Bible, in the middle of the Bible, isn't that just like the Lord? And that he would devote that longest chapter in the middle of his word, every verse of that chapter extolling and praising and glorifying the word of God. If that doesn't show you the inspiration, the veracity, the perfection of the scripture, that's just one of a million things but how perfectly our Lord has placed his word together and how he has brought it to pass. If you just want to know where to read or a verse to memorize or if you want to find out about God's word, go to Psalm 119 uh, and just revel and swim deeply in the, the grace and the wonder and the awe of God's word. How many ways can you describe the Word of God? Over and over again in different and varied ways, he extols the Word, the law, thy thy precepts, thy ways, the synonyms that he uses to describe God's Word. Well, we come to Psalm 119 and verse 145, and we have a testimony here. I love testimonies. I love testimonies when they're true testimonies. A testimony tells what one knows and has experienced uh, by the grace of God, a testimony does not extol self or glorify sin. Always be careful when you testify that you tell it accurately and truly and give praise to the Savior. Uh, I've heard things that were called testimonies that didn't quite fit into that uh, category. But he says, he just tells what his experience here. I cried with my whole heart, hear me, O Lord, I will keep thy statutes. I cried unto thee, save me, and I shall keep thy testimonies. I prevented the dawning of the morning. I preceded the dawning of the morning and cried. I hoped in thy word. Mine eyes prevent or precede the night watches that I might meditate in thy word. Hear my voice according unto thy loving kindness. O Lord, quicken me, make me alive according to thy judgment. And it's a wonderful thing just to mark the different words that are used to to describe the word of God, judgment here. They draw nigh that follow after mischief. They are far from thy law. Thou art near, O Lord, and all thy commandments are truth. What a statement. Every one of your commandments are true. Concerning thy testimonies, I have known of old that thou hast founded them forever. Oh, and I might add that every section of Psalm 119 is named after a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the reason being for that, it would make it easy to memorize. Now, I say that somewhat facetiously. We think of memorizing. I've heard of people memorizing the whole of of Psalm 119, but the different sections. And in the Hebrew, every uh, sentence in that section would begin with that letter. Does that make sense? If you start with Alpha, every uh, letter in that, every verse would begin with an A. And uh, if you were to do it, our English version doesn't do that. But see how intricate and perfect God's word is. The songwriter wrote, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what pain, needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. The trials of life, the problems of life, the burdens that come crashing upon us with living, 
ought to cause us to run to the Lord, as the psalmist says here, and cry out to him and to continually pour our hearts out to him. He knows our hearts. He sees our circumstances. He takes note of our tears. And here in these verses, these verses of testimony, we see the psalmist raise his voice in cries of desperate appeal to the Lord. We hear the psalmist crying, we hear him calling, and we hear him confessing. Let's look there, first of all, at his crying in verses 145 through 148. We notice three things about his cries as they ascend toward heaven and they, then they echo down through the ages of time. Here is a prayer recorded for us. Sometimes we cannot seem to express our own thoughts. The Lord is so gracious, he gives us prayers to choose from. And there's so many in the Psalms, I'm sure you can find one that will uh, parallel your experience or your heart cry. That's why we're so drawn to the Psalms, because they so accurately mirror our emotions and our, our situations of life. We see in verse 145 how fervent he was. I cry with my whole heart. He did not cry half-heartedly. Half-hearted prayers get half-hearted answers, we might say. Now, the Lord is not capricious in that way, but he does look at our sincerity. He does look at our earnestness, and he knows by the sound of our cry how earnest we are. I will hear me, O Lord, I will keep thy statutes. Every mother, under the sound of my voice, knows there are very different kinds of cries. There is the cry of hunger. That's a particular cry from the baby when the baby's stomach is empty and the, the pains of hunger are very strong in a baby and they will cause him to cry very acutely. There is the cry of loneliness. That's a different cry altogether. And a young mother has to learn to distinguish the two, but they can see that, 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 hear that lonely cry when he just wants company. There's the peevish cry. When the, the, the whinings and the nagging cry of a child who is bored or miserable or just wants something, a change of scenery, and it's quite different from the, being hurt uh, physically or being hungry or lonely. And then there's, there's the cry of pain uh, when he has been hurt or frightened. And that kind of cry, a mother knows. It calls for immediate action. It's a different sound than the other cries, and it's a, a desperate plea, and we go running. And that's the, that's the kind of cry that the psalmist has here. He says, I cried with my whole heart. He's in great pain. Uh, he was frightened. He was in need. And I'm sure that I'm addressing people who fall into that category tonight. Pastor, I'm in great need. I'm in great pain of heart, of agony, of soul. And the loving Heavenly Father recognizes that cry. We might not even be able to distinguish between those emotions and cries in our own heart, but he can. And he responds to it, not always like we would expect or what we would like to see done. Often he'll do it with a portion of scripture. He will show us a verse that we can claim or that we can comfort us or answer the need or the, the, the problem that we have. He does not always answer in our limited time frame, but you can rest assured he will always answer in time and in the right time. Over and over throughout the, the Bible, I, and especially in the, the Psalms, we hear this exact cry. Psalm 18:6. In my distress, I cried unto thee. Uh, Psalm 30, verse 2. O Lord my God, I cried to thee. Psalm 34, verse 6. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard. That's a, a testimony that 
answers. The Lord, I cried and he heard. He, he delivered me. Psalm 88, 1. Oh, Lord, I have cried day and night. So he did not answer immediately, did he? he? It was a period of time where he cried out and lifted his voice to the Lord. Psalm 130, verse 1. Out of the depths have I cried. Now, we have example over and over again of, of people in the scriptures who cried to the Lord. And I, let me just be clear here. This is not necessarily tears, although it certainly could include that. It may not even be audible. There's a cry of the soul which is very loud in a pillow at night. And uh, the soul lifting itself up before the Lord. In this prayer meeting tonight, as our men lead us in just a few moments, you may be ho- screaming to the top of your voice inside your, your soul to the Lord, though the rest of us do not hear it. In Exodus 8, verse 12, Moses cried unto the Lord. Think of that great leader, lawgiver, uh, and pastor of the, the largest church in the world, if you will, the children of Israel. He had pastors' pressures, didn't he? And uh, uh, problems. We were discussing that just before the prayer meeting where the, the people were so uh, like people, <laughs> just acting like themselves. And I commented facetiously, they must have been Baptists. They, you know, they just... And I'll leave it at that. In First Samuel 7, verse 9, Samuel cried to the Lord. First Kings 17, 20, Elijah cried. Second Kings 20, verse 11, Isaiah cried. Second Chronicles 14, 11, Asa cried unto the Lord. We're in good company, aren't we? These are stalwart people. These are not fledglings. These are not uh, immature believers. These are stalwarts. These are pillars of the faith. 2 Samuel 19.4, David cried with a loud voice. Nehemiah 9.4, the Levites cried with a loud voice. Ezekiel 11, verse 13, uh, Ezekiel cried with a loud voice. And let me just say here, and I, I have to be careful here because we sometimes imitate a thing and we, we, we imitate that instead of what I'm speaking about here. But how often do you hear people cry and lift their voice in prayer? In earnestness. Uh, so moved by the, the present circumstances of the nation or the, the lostness of loved ones. Oh, the heart lifting up and, and crying out to the Lord. Matthew 27, verse, verse 46, Jesus cried with a loud voice. Acts 7, verse 60, Stephen cried with a loud voice. Acts 16, 28, Paul cried, cried with a loud voice. And there in Revelation 7, verse 9, I beheld and lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the, the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands and crowned with a loud voice. Heaven's going to be a noisy place, isn't it? Filled with the praises of God's people. Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. I tell you, God hears the cries of his people. Alexander White, in commentating on Elijah's prayers, says that although Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are, Elijah put his passions into praying. And that means he knew how to cry out with his whole heart. Sometimes we put our passions into complaining, don't we? Or we put our passions into other ill-sought ways. But Elijah, with his feelings and passions, whatever you want to call them, ideas and thoughts, like we are, he put them into praying. And that's why he was able to see such mighty and lasting answers to his prayers and why he's held up to us 
signally as one of the great prayer warriors in the scriptures and, and with his name linked with the fervent a prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Well, that's what the psalmist does here. He puts, his, puts passion into his praying. You know, we're passionate about so many things. Our interest, our gardening, our sports, um, just so much, many things. You don't have to talk to someone very long if you feel what they really are into. Their voice will raise, their eyes will glisten, they begin to tell you and regret you things you don't even want to know about their passion, when they started, how long they've been doing it, how big their collection is, how big the fish was, you know, the one that got away that nobody could ever see or, or document. And all of us have areas of life where we, we, just get, we could just go on and on and on about it. Some famous person in history, uh, some favorite uh, writer or whatever. But somehow, and I'm not speaking of fanaticism here or or showiness, or that kind of thing. But do, do we really have that kind of zeal for our walk with the Lord and for the, the work of the Lord and for what the Lord is doing in our church and in our lives and in ministries? But notice that he puts promises into his prayers as well. Hear me, O Lord, I will keep thy statutes. Now, some people criticize that kind of praying. They say, Lord, if you'll do this, I'll do this. He's not bargaining with the Lord. You don't bargain with God, do you? But he is reminding himself of a duty that needs to be performed. And there's nothing like a request to the Lord to remind us of where we're falling short. Oh, yes. And always the Lord will remind us of those things in our praying. So he says, Lord, I'm crying. I'm desperate, but I'm determined. I will serve you. What did Job, though, uh, or Jacob say? Though you slay me, I will serve you. And, and one says, rescue me, and then the other says, rule me. If you're going to ask the Lord to rescue you, you should put yourself under his authority and say, rescue me, and then do it whatever you want to with me. Rescue me and rule me. You see, we don't get around to that second kind of praying. Lord, do this and this and this and do it right now. But we never remind ourselves and him what we should be doing in response. I'm not talking about works here, but there are callings, there are duties there are areas of our life that are being neglected. Lord, I will uh, submit myself to you. The answer to that kind of prayer is never far away. We see how fervent he was, but we see how frustrated he was. Look there in verse 146. I cried unto thee, save me, and I shall keep thy testimonies. Again, he promises to keep God's word. Do you know that's what Christian living is all about? Keeping the word of God. Observing it, obeying it, practicing it. In fact, we have no other real, uh, or that's one of the chief ways of proving that we're genuinely converted. That we have a desire, though imperfectly it may be, to keep, to mindfully observe God's word. And he promises to do that out of sheer gratitude if for no other reason. Often when people are in desperate straits, they will promise the Lord to live better lives or whatever if they'll just get them out of this car wreck, out of this jam, out of this circumstance, if he will act on their behalf. It was not until Jonah found himself in the belly of the fish that he broke down and said, I will pay my vows. Now, some people fool themselves into thinking, well, I will not pay vows. I will not say vows, so I will not have to keep them. But if you've come to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, if you're saved, you've given vows to him. Lord, I'm yours. 
No one is saved who's not has that in their attitude of their heart. I am yours. You're mine. You can do with me what. What was the, the signal uh, point that, pa, that the apostle Paul was saved? Lord, what will thou have me to do? That surrender, that heart cry, rule over me, Lord, sovereign, Adonai. And so that's the, the, the heart cry of a saved person. And within moments, when Jonah said, I will pay my vows, he had to get into some dire circumstances before he remembered that he had promised and pledged the Lord some things. Jonah was a free man. Within moments of him saying, I will pay my vows, it wasn't long until the, the fish uh, threw him up, uh, literally, on the, the, the shore. And he went and preached. Now, it's a sad thing that God has to deal with us in that way, but he's not above using all kinds of means to get his preachers to preach and his singers to sing and his people to live and walk in paths of holiness. Here the the psalmist repeats his promise so that he would be sure to fulfill it. He's reminding himself. It's, It's a good thing to remind yourself and to write out things. Write out verses that the Lord teaches you. I was speaking with someone just recently about Bible study. They said, what do you do? I said, I always read the Bible with a pencil in my hand. And I jot down things, questions. Uh, This is just in my personal devotional life. Always have a notebook. Always have a pencil. Marking both my Bible, writing down. I may say it's something I don't understand. And I'll say, Lord, what does this mean? I write it down to look it up. Uh, I write questions out. I put it in my own words. I make statements. I make lists. I write the verse out that speaks to me, put it in my pocket, carry it around with me. There's an active part on our part of studying and reading the Word of God, and he reminds himself. It is our duty to remind ourselves of what the Holy Spirit has shown us and taught us. And we're to exercise ourselves unto godliness. We just don't just sail along and passively. The reason you're not growing in grace, the reason you're not zealous is because you don't take it by the horns in that kind of way and really get down to the nitty-gritty with it. The Scripture is an open book to every child of God who has the Holy Spirit indwelling them, and all can know the doctrine, can know the Word of God. He wants you to know it. He will teach it to you. But it's, a, it's like a, a gold mine or a diamond mine, and Spurgeon said it will not yield its treasures to idleness. Oh, they're there, sparkling and glistening. I just heard recently in one of these state parks where you can go and mine for diamonds, a woman picked up a you know, huge diamond off the ground. Think of all the people who walked by it, stomped on it, kicked it around. She looked down, picked it up. It's one of the most expensive diamonds found. In one of these places where you say, I'm not going there. They've done that for 100 years. And everybody's picked. She found the big deal. Then it make you say, why did I go and, and pick up every rock? And it, well, some people are more diligent than others. We usually find what we're looking for. I take it she was looking for diamonds that day, don't you? I bet she told her husband or he told his wife, I don't know what was male or female, but we'll just suppose here, I'm going to go find me a diamond today. And he said, no, you won't. That's the park. Everybody goes in there. You pay your $5 or whatever to pay in for gold. You won't find anything. She said, I'll come closer than you will. And she did. Don't you know he was, uh, if, if that scenario happened like that, there was a lot of, I'll just put it this way, but there were a lot of surprised people. Even the park director was absolutely shocked. Why didn't he find the, the, the diamond lying there? She may have had to move a few rocks. I'm not sure. 
The Bible is filled with the treasury of God. Spurgeon called it an embarrassment of riches. Just all over the place. And they're there, but the treasure chest has to be opened. And the jewels have to be drawn out and held up to the light and dusted off for every generation. Do you have your pick out? Do you have your miner's cap on? Are you digging in the gold mine of God's word? Think of of Lot, Abraham's nephew. You can't help but wonder what was going on in that double-minded man's head. And I think he was a classic picture of a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Let not that man think he'll receive anything of the Lord. And as he and his family were dragged in chains of prisoners of war, you remember that? They got taken as prisoners of war. His fortune was gone. His family was in ruins. And we wonder if he prayed. I mean, I just wonder. Do you think Lot prayed? We, don't, we know who did pray. Uncle Abraham prayed, and he put feet to his prayers. He went and rescued Lot. It's always good to, to make steps toward the answer that the Lord is going to give. We do our part, even as we're asking him to do what he alone can do. I doubt very seriously Abraham would have been successful in rescuing Lot if he would not prayed about it, interceded on his behalf. And so did he cry out to God? Did Lot making promises to, to the Lord for the future if only God would deliver him? He probably did. He probably said, oh, Lord, save us. Keep us from, from harm and from being beheaded and all the things that could have happened. I believe that Lot probably cried out, save me. And I'll keep your testimonies. I'll teach those people in Sodom a thing or two. I'll, I'll be a good witness. But it didn't take long for Lot to go back to him on his word, did he? If he did pray. We know he, he got rescued. We know he went right back to Sodom and set up shop again. And it, all it took was for the king of Sodom to promise Lot, come on back to Sodom. I'll give you a position in my government. You can be on the city council. You'll sit at the gate. You'll be a judge. And that's all Lot needed to hear. Music to his ears. And in a, in a despicable situation, he knew better. I'm telling you that, that, that the capturing of Lot by the kings and being taken as prisoners of war was a disciplinary action from the Lord to tell him to get out of there and change his ways and take his family to a, a better environment. But he just went right back. Like so many believers do when the Lord delivers them out of a dire situation. They have short memories. Go right back to the old way of life, the old habits. We notice not only that he was frustrated, but he had prayed and his prayer had been answered. He had promised and then he promised again. But next we see how forward he was. Look at verse 147. I prevented or preceded the dawning of the morning and I cried, I hoped in thy word. Mine eyes prevent the night watches that I might meditate in thy word. See how persistent he was. He got up and made it a matter, a particular appointment with the Lord to pray. He reverently pestered God's throne. Remember, the, the, the widow, was her prayer was answered because of her importunity. And that's the example that our Lord Jesus himself gives us that our praying should be. The Jews divided the night into three watches of four hours each. The watches started at 6 o'clock at night. 6, 7, 8, 9, that was a watch. Uh, 10, 11, 12, 1, that's the second watch. 2, 3, 4, 5, 5 o'clock ended 
the third watch just before dawn. And he tells us that he got up sometime in the, the night watches. In verse 147, he prayed, he got up before morning. Now, he's serious, isn't he? Have you ever set your alarm clock just to get up to pray? I preceded the dawning of the morning and cried, I hope in thy word. Sometimes people say, Pastor, I have a, a child that's so weary uh, just recently, uh, or so way, away from the Lord. A dear lady was just pleading with me to pray with her about her grandchildren. And I asked, not, not in a you know, smarty or facetious way, do you schedule regular times to pray for them? You, you should set, when something is such a burden on your heart, like the conversion of a child or, or some spiritual situation in a loved one's life, you ought to set a clock and a day or some period of time, and that's when you make an appointment with the Lord to pour your heart out before him. That's what the psalmist did here. I preceded the, the sunrise. Somewhere between 1 o'clock and 5 o'clock, he got up to pour this matter out before the Lord. Don't you think, I know immediately some will say, oh, that's a legalistic way of going about it. Well, tell the psalmist that he got his prayers answered. If we would be that serious with the Lord, we're so flippant, so passive, so whatever will be, will be. And no wonder we don't see people converted. Does God want people saved? He came into the sin of his son to, to die to, to, to save his people. Aren't we to agonize and pray? over? The, didn't Abraham set aside time to intervene for Lot? And so he prayed. Often sleeps, evades us, and lying in bed before the sun comes up, we cry out to the Lord. Sometimes because of our burdens, because of our broken hearts or our urgent needs, our beds become a torture chamber. We can't do anything but, but pray. And so we get up tired from the tossing and the turning and spread it out before the Lord. In fact, if you can't sleep about something, that's the best thing you can do. Just go ahead and make a prayer altar out of the whole matter. This is the third time that the psalmist has mentioned his crying, if you're counting. And do that when you study the scripture. Note how many times things are said. Count things. Notice them. Repetition is a tool the Holy Spirit uses to get our attention. And that's why he repeats something. In case you missed it, he'll say it again. And sometimes he'll come back and say it again. All of those things have a reason in the scripture. In whatever portion you're reading, notice all those little hints that the Holy Spirit is showing you about the portion of scripture that you're studying. And he's in desperate trouble. It seems that God's word has failed him in his experience. There will be times in your Christian experience where what you believe doesn't seem to be panning out. Every believer will have times or seasons in their life where you say, I know this is true, but it just doesn't seem to be real. I remember talking with a man deep in sin who professed to be a a believer, and he just threw up his hand and he said, it just, it just it doesn't work. It can't, I know it's supposed to, I know the scripture says it, but I, I can't be successful in that area. And I, I, I reminded him that just because you have not experienced it personally in your life, doesn't mean it's not true or that God will not do it or not answer it for you. Your part is to hold on in prayer and to prevail and to agonize. It seems that God's word has failed him, and that's the worst part. There were times when Job lost hope. 
He didn't know why God allowed the, the disasters to overtake him and the, the, his close friends who were theologians came and didn't help. They just did not uh, help him at all. Um, they were accusative and trying to get him to repent of something he didn't know what to repent of and, and on and on. He didn't know about himself. He began to question his own standing and his own self. And, and, and what we have the privilege that Job never had, never did know what we know about his experience, that Satan had challenged God to prove himself through the life of Job. Have you ever thought that possibly that Satan could be doing that very same thing in your life? That you are the, the center of a situation going on between the Lord and Satan. Now, we don't know those things. I'm just, we know that it happened in Job's life, don't we? We know that it happened in Peter's life. And so it, the possibility could be there that God will never give you the luxury of knowing why the situation is what it is in your life. But you can rest as a child of God. He will get great glory out of it. And he will perfect you. Job said that. Though he slay me, I will serve him. He knows the way that I take. When he, when he has tried me, I will come forth as gold. Many such things are with him. And that's what Job made up his mind about. Not a single stroke fell on Job that God had not measured first. The songwriter says that soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. I love it when hymn writers get the Greek. That's exactly what it says in the Greek. And how many modern songs can hold up to that kind of doctrinal, uh, that kind of theological it's a, it's a triple negative in the Greek. It says exactly that. I will never, no, never, no, never leave thee. Nor. In the English, it just says, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. But the Greek is just like the, the hymn writer puts it in that beautiful hymn, How Firm a Foundation. If you're going to write hymns, make sure they do that kind of thing. Then the psalmist prayed before rising in the morning, and he, he prayed before going to bed at night. Look there in verse 148. Mine eyes precede or prevent the night watches that I might meditate in thy word. He sets times aside for meditating, thinking about, pondering the riches of God's word. Before drifting off to sleep, he prayerfully turned over the word of God in his mind. And he had, he had what some call a quiet time, whatever you want to refer to it about it. Some refer to the early time as the morning watch. Some refer to the evening time as the evening sacrifice or the quiet time, whatever you want to call it, this between you and the Lord. Just have one or two or ten. He had take, took time out before the Lord, and just quite honestly, most of us just waste too much time. And we ought to be more grieved about wasting time than wasting money. The time is so precious. These seconds that we're investing here, can never be recalled, but what you invest in the Lord's worshiping and giving to the Lord is actually being saved. That's what's called redeeming the time. The Bible teaches us to redeem, buy up the time. How could you do that? How do you go about redeeming the time? Someone has calculated that if, we, if the average believer lives to be 75, he spends 25 years asleep 
kind of weird when you look at it that way, doesn't it? Isn't it? 17 years at work, six years in traveling, seven and a half years just dressing, getting ready, that, that part of life, nine years watching TV, and who knows, I'm sure that, uh, that amount has changed drastically since all the other devices have been added to television. Six years being sick and only four years in prayer or worship or Bible study. Now, I'm not sure how accurate that is. Someone else came up with that and they averaged it. But at any rate, that's pitiful, isn't it? Four years out of 75 preparing for eternity. Less than half the time spent watching TV or checking Facebook or whatever. Suppose we took time from traveling and dressing and watching TV and even sleeping possibly and converted it into praying or digging in the gold mine of God's word or memorizing scripture or pondering the great doctrines of the faith. Thinking about the attributes of our God, his eternality, his holiness, his majesty. Going to those portions of scripture like Isaiah where he's six, where he's describing the, the glory of God and his train filling the temple. And the portion I read from Isaiah of the millions and the myriads of every tribe and nation praising him. There's so much to envision and to, to picture and to ponder truths to roll over in your mind. You will memorize scripture by going over. You, will, you can memorize scripture almost not on purpose, just by thinking of the verses over and over and over again until they become a part of your inner man. Suppose we redeem the time for Bible study, finding out what God's Word has to say and putting it into practice and and working out ways of incorporating what we've just learned into our daily lives and and a way of sharing it with someone else and and, uh, crafting a way to witness to a co-worker or whatever it is that we were to do. Suppose we redeem time to pray for our family for friends, for missionaries, and and to call them by name. And you have a a regimented way of doing that. And all those hundreds of other things that we're too busy to get around to doing. We could increase the time that we spend in prayer and Bible study by 19 years instead of a puny four years of our lives. And we could spend 23 years in getting ready for the judgment seat of Christ, because that is an appointment that you have to get ready for. Do you realize that? We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And what would be one of the top things on the list of what the Lord reviews with us? Now, you had, and he'll tell us how many seconds we had on this earth. Exactly. How many days, weeks, years. And show us in that perspective how useless and some things were that we gave ourselves over to and how neglectful we were in other areas. F.W. Borum of England used to tell about a gypsy woman when he was a little boy in the village where he lived. She would come on market day to the village in the town square all with her gypsy jewels on and she would have this this big uh, uh, tapestry bag 
full of treasures, trinkets and things that she had gathered along the way. And she would bring them out to hawk them for wares, and she would hold up some uh, bauble, something that would catch someone's attention, and she'd say, here it is for sale. She'd call out the name. Here's a pocket watch for sale, $5 or whatever it is. And she'd just give, And if someone didn't buy it immediately, she would put it back in her bag and would not bring it out of back again for them to see it. If they did not buy the treasure that she bought out immediately, they missed their chance. No, on no account would she take it out again and give the people another chance to look at it or to buy it. They had to make that on-the-spot decision to buy her treasures or the opportunity was gone. Did you know that time is like that gypsy lady? These seconds, these moments are here. They're glistening. They're full of opportunity but they'll never come back again. We'll never have the opportunity to look at them, to use them, to invest them. The Apostle Paul, as I've already mentioned, warns us to redeem the time. And God offers each of us a fleeting span of time called life. Every second of life is fleeting past us. We can seize it and use it for eternity or we can allow it to pass by, unredeemed, unused, and not working for eternity. And life's golden moments never, ever return. We see the, the psalmist crying in verses 145 through 148. But then we see him calling in verse 149 through 151. Hear my voice according to thy loving kindness. O Lord, quicken me. And he begins to list some requests. The word here is emphatic. He's telling the Lord, oh, do hear me. Please hear me. Give me your ear. The psalmist bases his plea on the love and the kindness of God. He has a basis for his request. He has done the research to know what God is like. He begins to pray the very attributes of God that, that God is bound by in dealing with his people. He asks God to hear my voice. Only God could do that. And at this very second, there are over 5 billion people in the world right now. And think of the number of them. There's a large number of them who are in prayer. At any moment, think of all the voices that are lifting their voice to the Lord. Only the God, the creator God of the universe, could hear them distinctly, know each one as, a, as his own child. Who but God could hear and single out one feeble voice of an individual in all that babble? God is omniscient. He knows all things. He, he's everywhere and present at, at the same time. It is an attribute of God alone. And that's why it is silly to pray to a saint or to, to Mary. The psalmist asks God to hear him. He has no doubt that God can hear him. He's not praying to a statue or to some dead person. He's praying to the living God of the universe who knows and hears all things. And he bases his request on the love of God. Have you ever thought about what attribute of God that you're basing or can link your request to? He asked God to respond with life. He wanted God to make him alive, quicken him. There, this is revival. We spoke of revival last week. When you see the word quicken in a prayer of a child of God, it's revive me. We so desperately need revival. And it's something only God can do. Make me alive. Make me vital. And that's the lesson we need to learn. 
in verse 150, he describes his plight, his circumstance. There were those who around him who were far away from God. Well, that, that, that's us, isn't it? You work with people. You live around people who are far away from God. They had long ago departed from God's word. The quickest way to measure how far a person has gone from the road that leads to, down the road that leads to destruction can be seen in this question, how much is that person like Jesus Christ? So I ask you to ask yourself that about yourself. How like the Lord am I? Who could imagine Jesus being spiteful or malicious or moody or mean or petty or jealous or hostile or lazy or negligent or deceitful or anything that we deal with on a daily basis? They were far away from the Lord but they were very near to the psalmist, and they were after him with their tongues, sharpened like a two-edged sword, he mentions here. Their words were like poisoned arrows. In verse 151, he describes his safe place. Thou art near, O Lord, and all thy commandments are truth. The enemies were near, but God was nearer. He is as close as the mention of his name. He is ever-present. He is near you, and that is enough. It doesn't matter what's going on. It doesn't matter who what kind of person's in the next cubicle at work, or your mate, or whoever it is may be that may be far away from the Lord. God is nearer. When the Israelites were fleeing Egypt in the great exodus, Pharaoh was frightened out of his wits by the death of the firstborn throughout all the land and the wailings of grief. And he let them go. But as they left, he thought about the, the, the devastation of his land and the famine that had cursed it and the, the slaves that were now gone and the, how were they going to, to manage. And enraged and embarrassed, he made up his mind. He'd go get them. He'd bring them back. He'd make them pay. They thought they had it bad before. He did have it worse. He was through with this make-believe God of theirs as they were going to sacrifice. He had no regard for him, and he would go and make them pay. Soon the Egyptian armies were rallied and they were on the hills of the Israelites. What did Moses do? There's nothing like armies coming your way to, to strike fear in your heart. And Moses cried out to the Lord. He cried out with his voice. And God acted. The Shekinah glory cloud of the Lord maneuvered between the children of Israel and the Egyptians and stayed the chariots and the men of might and power, and froze them, if you will, or kept them at bay to the last, feeblest, eldest Jew got across the sea. And so the psalmist is as safe as the children of Israel. Did, did one of them fail? Was one of them overcome? Did one of them fall behind? Did Pharaoh get one of the children of Israel? No, not one. His enemies were near, but the Lord was nearer. That was all the protection he needed. Do you know all the protection you need is what God can provide? The, the, the shield of the Lord, the, the hedge of protection that he affords. And then lastly, we see the psalmist confessing. True prayer always has praise. It always has petition. And it always has confession. Because we always need have something to confess, don't we? Concerning thy testimonies, I have known of old that thou hast founded them forever. 
Forever takes us back a long, long time, doesn't it? It's an immeasurable point in eternity past. It takes us back before the Spirit of God inspired Moses to pen the very first words of the Bible. Forever takes us back before the the stars were placed in the sky, the seas were created. Before the creation of our planet, before the galaxies were formed, we go back far, far, far to the triune Godhead sitting in council. And when we reach back as far as eternity in that direction, that was when this word was founded. Isn't that amazing? The word that you hold in your lap tonight was founded way back before any man can measure in the heart and mind of the triune Godhead. Forever takes us on ahead a very long way. Let's fast forward in the opposite direction to after the last soul has been converted and the last enemy has been put down and the devil is thrown into the lake of fire with his legions of angels and after the the tribulation, after the, the millennial reign of Christ and after the eternal day has dawned, far into the future, as far as you can go, there, on, on and on forever, as long as God is alive, His Word will live. That's how long His Word will endure. From back then until then. God's Word cannot be broken, Jesus said. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. God's Word firm and changeless. Well, time will be no more. When the last scoffer has closed their eyes in death, when the last infidel is burning in hell, when the last saint has been crowned, when the angelic hosts assemble and praise our great God, His Word will stand forever unhindered, unharmed, Not one scientific paper, not one railing atheist will dent or scratch one jot or tittle of the eternal word of God. That is what our souls are resting on tonight. Not some passing fancy, not some theory, not some emotional, spiritual feeling. Our souls are resting on this word. There's an insurance company that uses the Rock of Gibraltar as its image. It's a very strong and and, uh, compelling image, a symbol of stability. It offers its policyholders a piece of the rock. And the idea is if you've got us, you've got all your troubles taken care of. Please don't believe that. Not that company, any insurance company. They can only do so much. But God offers us what no insurance company or parliament or government or anything else can offer. He offers us his rock forever. And he is the rock. He is the Word made flesh that dwelt among us. He is that rock. In fact, He's called the rock in the Scripture. And there we rest, in the, in the cleft of the rock, under the shadow of the Almighty. That's where your soul is tonight.
That's where it abides. And so we can come as his people, humbly, repenting, confessing, crying to the Lord. What is it that's burdening you tonight? Bring it to the mercy seat. Cry out to the Lord. Moan before the the altar of God. You're at a prayer meeting. My house should be called a house of prayer. You, the Lord sees tears and sobs and the groanings of the hearts. And as these men come and lead us in prayer, you lift your voice. You tell the Lord exactly what is needed in your heart and mind tonight. Let's go before him tonight. I mean, if you'll come and lead us. I wish everyone in this room, pour your hearts out before him. Bring that name of that person that's lost, that's absolutely breaking your heart. That burden, that fear, that besetting sin. Why not bring it to the cross tonight? Cry out to the Lord and pay your vows. And tell Him what you need to do, what you're going to do. Do business with the Lord as we go in.